tuned into the Benefit Broadcast, the Conceal or Reveal edition, a six-part series spotlighting a collective of inspirational morale raisers. We'll be opening up conversation to reveal perspectives on topics that many choose to conceal and embracing self-expression, acceptance and celebration, whatever that might sound like. I'm Shah Bailey. I'm a community campaigner, a writer and content creator raising awareness about autism. And I'm joined by the gorgeous Grace Timothy. I'm Grace Timothy, I'm a writer and I present the podcast, Is It My ADHD? On this episode, we'll be talking about reframing the narrative around neurodivergence, destigmatizing diagnosis and demystifying what it's like to think a little differently. Let's get into it, Shah. First, we're going to throw it back and talk about our early experiences with neurodivergence. How was school for you, Grace? School was a... I feel bad for everyone who was around at that time now, but it was a bitch. It was so hard. And I think the conversation around any kind of neurodivergence just wasn't there at all. So it's no wonder that nobody kind of registered. I worked really, really hard to be the kid that I thought everyone wanted me to be, mm-hmm. to be the girl Completely that I thought everyone wanted to be. Yay! Totes relate. And they're like gender norms, even as like an eight-year-old girl, knowing you're quiet, you're small, you know. Sit like a lady. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, well, yeah, the ladylike stuff. I mean, I just couldn't. And it was like the pain of masking all of that and Mm. the physical and emotional toll is still going on now for me, like 30 years later. Mm. It was hardcore and it was a lot of hiding who I was and physically hiding away from everyone else and all those things. So I think on the surface, everyone would have been like, you were fine, you know, you did all right in school and I didn't get into too much trouble, but actually my whiteness, Mm -hmm. my family structure around me, all of those things supported me to be what everyone wanted me to be. And behind closed doors, I was a mess, yeah. Yeah, because like me, you're diagnosed late in life, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because I was at school, same, unruly. Thought I was friends with everyone, realised later, actually friends with no one. And the masking, almost like, not masking, but creating a character, Mm. like creating a version of yourself that can fit into different groups and just be wherever I wanted to be. And it wasn't until, like, hindsight and reflecting back, I was like... Hmm. Now that I've got my diagnosis in my late 20s, (laughs) what's me? Mm. Who am I? And what are the things that I have decided are a part of me because they were popular or everybody else was doing them? So, yeah, loads of unlearning for me. Mm. Do you also have that thing of what's my personality? What's the aftershocks of my childhood? And Mm -hmm. what's a symptom? Yeah. It's like, what is trauma? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) What is who I actually am? Because I'm not perfect. And what is a trait of autism? Is it the food that I'm eating? Am I having a sensory reaction? Is it too bright in here? Is it too noisy? Or am I just being a bitch today? (laughs) That's sometimes, yeah, I I feel you. I feel like also, like, imagine someone saying to, like, nine-year-old you, Mm -hmm. do you know what? This is what's going on in your head at the moment, and it's okay How would that have changed your trajectory? Yeah, that's such a good question, actually, because not knowing was great in a sense because it didn't put me in a box Mm. of, oh, and I didn't have an excuse. So I had to deal with eating all of my dinner. And I wasn't like, oh, well, she's sensory. She doesn't have to have a pee, a pee rolling around in the bottom of her mouth. (laughs) So, you know, it shaped me to have a little bit more resilience. But I think 
getting the diagnosis later was actually a benefit because it helped me understand my journey. Mm -hmm. I was misdiagnosed so many times, like, oh, maybe you have an eating disorder or maybe you have anxiety. And yet I do have anxiety because the world is not built for me. Yeah. You know, autism isn't necessarily for me or my neurodivergence doesn't have a negative impact on me. Mm -hmm. Like I've learned to deal with those things that were negative growing up. And now I just get to look at all of the things that make me cool. Yeah. Make us cool. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Neurodivergence is cool. But I suppose until society makes those adaptations mm -hmm. so that it is inclusive of everyone and how all of our brains work, we have to make those adaptations. And I think as an eight-year-old, that was what I struggled with so much. And I think you're right, as an adult, you're like, I've, I've been through tougher. This is all mm -hmm. right now. I can do this. And also, actually, if you're not ready to accept that this is the truth and this is what I am, then, then you're not part of my world anyway. That's okay. Mm-hmm. But as a kid, imagine, like, what? You just want to be friends with everyone, like you said. Yeah, you just want to fit in. Mm -hmm. And how can you fit in when you're not sure where you fit? Or if you actually just don't fit. Mm -hmm. I spent so much time as a young person being ashamed. Mm -hmm. Ashamed of my queerness, ashamed of my blackness, ashamed of my autism. But now I feel like those things are the things that I get to celebrate about me. Those are the things that are different, but different is no longer synonymous with worse. Mm -hmm. I thought that, oh, because I'm this and this and this, that in comparison to others, I was lesser. Mm -hmm. But now I know that I'm equal and I'm proud to be me and I can celebrate all of those intersections and know what they mean, know how they benefit me and use them to help other people as well. Because that's, I feel like every neurodivergent person has this underlying want and need to help heal the world absolutely do you get do you, have, do you yeah. have that yeah yeah completely but I have to say if I'm totally honest that before I got my diagnosis and I didn't know what was going on with me it was quite a self-involved a little bit selfish world because I just needed to work out how to sort myself out mm -hmm. and what it's taught me having a diagnosis is to be more tolerant of people's intolerance of certain things and difficulties and if someone's really abrupt with me I won't now be like what I'll be like, oh, okay, you've got something, something's going on, that's okay, and it's not about me, and that's cool, maybe it is about me, but we can work it out. So I think it's tolerance and understanding that, that it's not just you going through this as well, I think it's really important. And then to find a community mm -hmm. of people who hold you up. I think that's been the best and the most joyful thing that I can celebrate about getting a diagnosis. Yeah. Having other people who suddenly I make sense to, yeah. and they make sense to me not being that person who comes with a disclaimer or a, a warning like, oh, I'm bringing my friend Shah. She's really nice, but she might be a bit abrupt or she might be blunt or she's very black and white or mm. she's weird, but nice. Just being able to be like, oh, I have autism and you can accept me and I will be as polite as I can be. But as a kid, you go out into the world and you're completely yourself. And as an adult, there's a lot more reframing of the narrative that we talk about, how we present ourselves, how we act and what's socially acceptable. Yeah. So I think that's what's really helped me be the woman that I am and be proud of the woman that I am mm. now. I think also when you're a kid, you don't question those norms mm -hmm. and those expectations. You just go like, this is who I've got to be. I've got to be quiet and I've got to listen and I've got to strap down every impulse to jump out of my chair mm -hmm. and just like <laughs> be, be that girl, be that kid, be that person, just like lock it down. At school, how many times did the teachers tell you that the chairs had four legs and not two? My God, they're leaning. The, the swinging. Yeah. 
<laughs> I feel you, I feel you. I think it's like now as an adult as well, you can be like, no, abrupt has its place actually. Mm. And like, what's to say that that isn't the thing that's okay and acceptable and is going to be powerful in certain situations. And I think it's just as an adult, thank God. And I've got such gratitude for understanding that the standard that's been a set is not the standard that you have to accept mm-hmm. and that you can move outside of that. But to expect a kid to know that at that age, I hope now we're in a different time and that kids are better equipped. But Well, with a mothers like you in the world, <laughs> of course they will be. Or we try. But baby Shah and baby Grace, oh, to be able to go back and be like, babe, this is what's going on, it's okay. And even just to tell the head teacher or whatever, don't break her balls like she's doing her best. Yeah, I mean, I used to have the one of looking up to the ceiling for the answers yeah. in school a lot because like visualising and being neurodiverse, a lot of the answers come from me visualising what's happening. Mm-hmm. So looking up, visualising and the teacher would be like, the answers aren't on the ceiling. And I'd be like, girl. Yes, they is. Yes, is. <laughs> oh my God, but also right, imagine not encouraging a kid to just learn in whatever way they were. Like, mm-hmm. if you're coming up with the results at some point, oh, it's just, it is heartbreaking. And I think I'm so happy now talking to so many psychologists and psychiatrists that mm-hmm. the game is changing and that the psychoeducation around people in education is so much better, so much work to be done. I didn't even think of myself as being neurodivergent at all because my references as a kid for neurodivergence were like Rain Man and Sheldon. So I was like... Can I count really fast? No. no. <laughs> Do I know the encyclopedia? No. Can I predict what train is coming at what speed at what time? No, so clearly I'm not autistic. That is for white, straight boys. It, for me, it was like a privileged illness mm. to have that didn't affect queer people or black people or people like me. Mm. So having this sword now, this weapon that I can utilise and understand and carve my way through the world... I'm just glad that I grew up to be me. Yeah, me too. Let's go back then to the sort of intersections that affect the diagnosis process. Mm -hmm. And obviously diagnosis for both of us being a privilege. What do you think, if you had tried to get that diagnosis any earlier or whatever, what do you think were the things that were getting in the way and that you were misdiagnosed as? I think all of those intersections, Mm -hmm. being a girl, a lot of the research or the way that they diagnose is based on Small white boys? Yeah. Which I'm not, which you are not. (laughs) I'm assigned female at birth. I'm a person of colour. I'm a member of the queer community. All of these things are other reasons as to why I might have this issue. I could have a mental health problem or an eating disorder because the way the food feels in my mouth. But it was never going to be, oh, you might be autistic because you don't fit that demographic. So I think that was really difficult for me and really tricky to try and navigate and not ask the question, what's wrong with me? Because yeah. that girl, ain't nothing, ain't nothing wrong, wrong with me. <laughs> but also to like, advocate for yourself when you don't know what the thing is. If you don't read the books and the papers on autism, like why would you? Why would you like, even think of it? Yeah, you wouldn't. It's only now as an adult, after getting the diagnosis, mm. that I now know all of these incredible autism activists and writers and people who have explored neurodivergence to such a important degree Mm. that now I've known oh there is actually information out there there is help available and I'm not alone and also you're telling people so the more you're spreading that awareness that's a woman over here and a woman over there who like doesn't understand is struggling Mm -hmm. and then we'll hear you and go 
oh, like now I can go and self-advocate for myself and I know how to frame that conversation so that I get heard. So the other thing, of course, is being heard. So not just whether you're able to articulate yourself, which we're privileged to be able to do that and have the language for it and all that stuff, but also to feel heard. And mm -hmm. I know like as a woman going to medical professionals quite often and, and educational professionals is quite difficult. And we do feel like sometimes, yeah, we're not being heard and we're maybe a little bit eye-rolly and that mm. kind of thing. Well, yeah, because we're, you know, as women, we are emotional, aren't we? Too emotional. Mm -hmm. And we could be hormonal or we could be being dramatic. We could be being overly sensitive. We could be oh, making a problem where there's nothing there. So, yeah. yeah, I really, I get that. But I think we've done well to, to navigate what it is. And for me, it's really important now to look back at young people and say, well, how can I be an advocate? Yeah. What needs changing? How can we be better supportive? How can we show them that they are people who should be celebrated yeah. and there's nothing wrong with you? In fact, being neurodivergent is something that, you, that can make you incredible. Yeah, with the right support and the right framework, we are amazing. Yeah, so that's it. it's about not changing the person, but changing the environment so yeah. that the person can thrive. We're like little plants. Oh my God, I love that. Yeah, we're good with plants. Yes, manure me up. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> I think what's also really interesting about our diagnosis, so you were diagnosed in your electronics. Electronics. Yeah, so tell me, how did that come about and what made you then seek that diagnosis? Everyone around me, my partner at the time, just kept saying, you're autistic, I think you're autistic. She had autistic friends and family members. She picked up on the traits. Obviously, she was the only person who was intimate with me at the time, mm -hmm. so she understood my sensory needs, how I react to certain touch, etc. And in all honesty, my initial response was like, screw you, mm. that's offensive. Yeah. But it was something that kept coming up every time I'd meet somebody who knew someone else who was on the spectrum, mm -hmm. as they'd call it, they would give me a, another little gift or another little key or something else that just made a little bit more sense. And I resisted it because we resist. Yeah. Society says that it's bad to be autistic, so I resisted leaning into getting the diagnosis. But it was being with a partner who was supportive mm. and who was able to help me explore who I really was. That's beautiful. All right, it's time to check in with all of you and see what you've been saying on social media. Okay, Shah, here's a question for you. My friend was recently diagnosed with autism. How can I support her? Mm, good question, especially when it's a friend, because I think we all know someone that we care about who might be diagnosed with some type of neurodivergence. I think for me, what's really important is to do your own education. So don't go to your friend and say, hey, tell me everything there is to know about autism, because that would be overwhelming. So if you can do some research and find some things that might help support them, that's always important. I'd say number two, be compassionate and patient. I think whenever anybody has a diagnosis of anything, just because it's not a life-threatening illness doesn't mean that it's not going to have an impact on your friend. So always be compassionate. And also, people often ask about how to support someone with an autism diagnosis, but I'd like them to start asking how can we celebrate our friends with autism diagnosis. Yeah. So don't think of it as my friend is 
so sad and they have autism and I need to support them. Think about ways that their autism that you probably already know makes them amazing. Remind them of the things that are worth celebrating and just be a decent human. Pretty strong advice there. Yeah. Can Do I ask a question? For you? Yeah, yeah, yes. My turn. Yes, yes. Okay. So, do you have any specific tips on living with neurodivergence day to day? Well, I think first of all, look at your behaviours that are coming from your neurodivergence and think about how many of them you really have to adapt and change and manage because obviously we're kind of conditioned to think that we have to be a certain way but mm -hmm. actually some of those things like we were saying are to be celebrated so don't fight every impulse would be number one number two in terms of where the societal expectations are so strong that you have to so whether you're in an office environment or somewhere where you feel like you just have to kind of mask and conform it's okay but give yourself a grace period where you just can have like complete alone time through the day, be really honest about what you need and advocate for yourself. I think just know that there is a fallout from some of those efforts that you have to make. And then also I think look at the relationships that most require you to adapt your behaviours and ask why those relationships require that of you and whether it's worth doing. So for me, I really want to put as much energy into having patience around my daughter. Mm -hmm. And I want to put that into my relationship with my husband as well. But if it's a distant colleague or something, I might question whether actually I'm going to put my energy there or not. Do you know what I mean? And like, just protect yourself until society has learned to protect you better as, um, as a sort of supportive network. Ooh, protect yourself, protect yourself until society has learned to protect you better. Now, let's head into our next segment, Conceal and Reveal. Here, we want to talk about the things we found hard to express or show in the past. So I want to start, Grace. Yes. Can you tell us about a moment where you felt you needed to hide your neurodivergence? So many moments. So many moments. Um, I think the one that probably has stuck with me the longest outside of childhood is my first job in a magazine. I think I was striving to fit in, obviously, from the word go, as you would anyone would in a new job. But it was obviously the environment was very specific and quite narrow margins as to how you would fit in. And I remember that feeling of just like, just never going to be able to do this. You're never going to be able to do it. And just fighting every single day, every impulse to speak out, try and stay quiet, try not to crack your really inappropriate jokes, try not to share every detail of your period with everybody. Mm -hmm. Like all of those things. I'm an oversharer. That's how I connect with people. Just like don't connect, just stay in yourself, do what you've been told to do and try not to fuck it up. And inevitably fucked it all up and told everyone everything. And eventually just felt I had to leave because the shame is mm. with you, isn't it? And I think that's something that we carry for a long time. But yeah, I obviously didn't know that I was concealing a neurodivergence. I just thought I'm concealing everything because everything is terrible mm. yeah but like in a great way now because I can look back on that and think I totally understand what was happening now and I would never allow that to happen to myself again I'd like to throw that back to you now Shah what moment do you remember of having to hide your neurodivergence I feel like you like many 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 moments but I think the ones that are most pertinent to me at the moment are in relation to dating mm. meeting new people there's such a stigma around neurodivergence and being autistic and what it means that sometimes, especially if I'm dating someone, maybe if I've been set up or I don't really know them or not that I'm a serial dater, but <laughs> just meeting new people in general, even like mate dates and friends, 
because of the stigma sometimes I feel like it's something that I'll only share if I trust that person or if I know that person because there's been times where I've mentioned that I'm autistic and the response is, oh, you don't look autistic. I'm like, well, you do. <laughs> how do you, you know, how do you navigate that? And yeah. Because I'm high functioning, mm -hmm. you know, those terms that we don't use, because I dress a certain way and conduct my life in a certain way, people find it difficult to understand and believe and accept that I might have challenges or that I might communicate or think in a different way. So I think, yeah, definitely meeting new friends, dating, and it's not something you put on your Tinder bio, is it? <laughs> not that I've ever been on Tinder. <laughs> I suppose there's also a scrutiny that comes with it, isn't there, that you are like seeing in someone, even if they're not there that yet, that, yeah. you know, you kind of foresee that judgment. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now we're gonna look at what we are gonna reveal at this point. Oh, yeah. So actually, in terms of no longer concealing our neurodivergence, how has your neurodivergence helped you in perhaps the way that you think differently? Girl, I don't tolerate bullshit. There's this like stigma that when you're neurodivergent, you can be a little bit black and white. But I think sometimes, especially in the work that I do, it's important to be black and white. It's important to look at the facts. It's important to take the emotion out of things and say, well, what's actually happening? Where are the solutions? Let's stop focusing on the problems and let's get something done. So I feel like my neurodivergence helps me just be really pragmatic, decisive, move with a sense of urgency, mm -hmm. with like a sense of purpose, where sometimes I think, no offence to the NTs, NTs meaning neurotypicals. They can sometimes get wrapped up in a world of emotion, a world of thoughts and feelings, whereas I'm a little bit more like, Let's cut the crap and get things done because you deserve to feel good. Mm. Your life is to be enjoyed, not endured. So let's go. Yes. And an efficiency, right? Yeah. Quick. Yeah. Speed, Pacey. accuracy, efficiency. Yes. God, it's so Yes. I'm going to throw it back at you, babe. Yeah. Because I feel like we're in it. Yeah. So tell me about how your ADHD, your neurodivergence, thinking differently. What's the benefits? I think that while a lot of people carry shame around this, I love the lack of filter. Mm. So I've like grown a slight filter as an adult because I've learned, oh, you didn't like that when I said that. But I think also a lack of filter is great for a sense of humour, for cutting through the bullshit, obviously, mm -hmm. and connecting with someone on a deeper level straight away. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't really do small talk very effectively. So let's just go straight in, like what is actually important here. And I think that those human connections that you get off the back of that, and also in terms of work, in mm -hmm. terms of sharing. So as a writer, I want to be really honest. And people are always really surprised by that. And I'm mm -hmm. like, I have no other way. It's either this way or I don't share. Let's just go straight to the core of the issue. So yeah, I think that lack of filter is actually really, really helpful. And there's a fearlessness that comes with that as well, which yeah. I think is the fuel behind that. And So many people use that word like authenticity. But for me, I never see authenticity unless it's in a neurodivergent person. Right. Like real authenticity yeah. is, you know, children, neurodivergence. Yeah. Because there is a childlike fearlessness about it. It is that, isn't it? It's not necessarily knowing the consequences or not letting them steer you. Now we're going to dive in a little deeper with some DMC. And for anyone who's not familiar with that term, it just means the deep and meaningful chat. So, Shah, talk to me about neurodivergence and gender. Let's dive in. First of all, let's blanket statement say that the language used around neurodivergence is not progressive. Mm -hmm. Everything's 
about little white boys, let's be real. And so when we're talking, we're talking from the perspective of both being assigned female at birth. And also just to mark a point that gender is not the same as sexuality, mm -hmm. gender expression and sexual identity are not the same. So although somebody might express their gender in a certain way, doesn't mean that they, their sexuality has changed. Cool. I love neurodiverse people when it comes to gender because I think for me, certainly, I don't know how to sit like a lady or dress like one or act like one. And in fact, I do. And for me, it's just more comfortable to have my legs open. I don't want to cross my legs and be worried about what's happening. I just want to be comfortable. I just want to sit in a way that expresses me and who I am and the way I feel. And if that's more comfortable, then why can't I? Because I'm a girl, but I don't care mm. about what society expects me to be. I want to feel fluid. And I think from the community that I am involved in and the people that I know. There are a lot of people who are, I think it's 70% of people who are non-binary, also neurodivergent. And having that lack of a need to conform, to express myself in a way that is set in somebody else's version of who I'm supposed to be or how I'm supposed to present, I think that's the link for me. Mm. My neurodivergence helps me look at gender as something that doesn't really exist to me. I perform and I behave and I interact and I exist in the world as me. And if that is a femme version, a masculine version, a woman, a man, a person, an alien, then that doesn't really matter how the world sees me. More that I see myself and I'm comfortable in expressing myself in the way that best reflects me. Mm. I think also as a part of your autism and of my ADHD is that you're a boundary pusher mm -hmm. because of that fearlessness. And so if you want to change the game in terms of what gender means, I think we're so brilliantly placed to do that. Yeah, we are at the forefront of making decisions of being inclusive mm -hmm. and celebrating people who are different and not just different in a neurodiverse sense, people who express themselves differently, people who present themselves differently, people who look at the world differently. Mm. Like I said earlier, I think we're really great at recognising that different doesn't mean worse. So we're poised, I think, to represent and to embrace that community. I think the issue with ADHD is that obviously you have to quite often self-advocate and mm -hmm. to navigate the system of diagnosis is really important. And obviously loads of healthcare professionals and educational settings aren't equipped with how ADHD presents in a woman. Mm. And it is different. And I, I mean, I don't even want to think about how different it is for non-binary people because the research isn't there, which is such a huge hurdle for anyone going through that as well. So I think it's like also about us trying to spread awareness of what it feels like and looks like in real lived experience, not in clinical settings and not in based on the research that's all based around white mm -hmm. cishet boys. And like that's our responsibility almost to like spread that word and break those boundaries down and destigmatize, but also just make it known. All right, we're going to wrap things up with some bits of advice for everyone listening. So I think people quite often struggle with how to talk about neurodivergence, if they're, especially if they're like new to the community. What's your sort of number one language to avoid? Number one language to avoid is we are not high functioning or low functioning. Never, ever call us that. 
So what's your top tip for talking openly about neurodivergence? I think it's really key that you first run it through with someone that you feel completely safe with in a safe environment to kind of just figure out and process how you feel about it. And I would love to be able to say, just get out there and talk about it. But I'm aware that comes from a position of privilege where I've already got this platform and I have a supportive network of people around me who want to hear it. So we have to kind of come together as a community to work out how it's going to be safe for everyone to talk about it. So I think it, the responsibility is on all of us. Well, I think we've covered quite a lot in this conversation. We really have, and it was so great speaking to you. Thank you so much for your honesty and authenticity. Thank you as well, Shah. It was awesome. And thank you for listening to the Benefit Broadcast, the Conceal or Reveal edition. Be sure to like and subscribe and tell all your friends. And you can find the video series of this podcast on Instagram at Benefit Cosmetics UK. Tune in next week for another great episode with a new set of hosts. Bye. Bye. This episode of the Benefit Broadcast, the Conceal or Reveal edition, was hosted by Char Bailey and Grace Timothy. For more information on neurodivergence and the topics covered in this episode, please see the show notes for links to resources. It was produced and edited by Contenters Queen. Original creative production and casting by The Digital Fairy. Original music by Alice Boyd.